for veterinarians who are really thinking about selling, spend three, four, five hours with somebody who can give them counsel and really explain the options so that they get a, a better idea of what is truly possible out there, uh, especially if they find themselves limited in their ability to see an exit strategy that is beneficial uh, and desirable. That is Dr. Jose Pla, joined by Dr. Bree Montana, both veterinarians, practice owners, and so much more. And this is the VIN Foundation's Veterinary Pulse podcast, and another episode of the Future's So Bright series on the ins and outs of selling a veterinary practice. I'm Jordan Benchia, VIN Foundation's Executive Director. Join me and our co-host and VIN Foundation board member, Dr. Matt Holland, as we talk with veterinary colleagues about critical topics and share stories. Stories that connect us as humans, as animals, as a veterinary community. This podcast is made possible by individuals like you who donate to the VIN Foundation. Thank you. Please check the episode notes for bios, links, and information mentioned. Welcome back, Bree. We are excited for our fourth installment in the Future So Bright series, the ins and outs of selling a veterinary practice. And today we have with us Dr. Jose Pla. He, he is a veterinarian, a practice owner, holds an MBA, and so much more, including he's currently in the midst of looking at purchasing a practice. So he is our other perfect test case, along with Bree looking to potentially sell a practice. We now have someone that's in the midst of purchasing a practice. Um, welcome, Bree and Jose. Thanks for being here. I have to tell you, I was so excited uh, to invite uh, Jose to join this uh, effort that you've, you're helping us get out there, Jordan. Um, when I saw Jose's posts on the management boards, practice management boards on VIN, I said, oh my gosh, we have to get this guy. <laughs> and on my behalf, I want to thank you both for having me and having invited me to your podcast. Well, we're thrilled that you're here. So thanks for willing, being willing to be subject for these test cases. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Jose is here to help us do a deep dive into the financial and legal aspects of selling a practice. And as always, um, we are going to put in the episode notes, and then you can also find on the message boards on VIN through the VIN Foundation Center, the podcast transcripts, etc. Jose is a phenomenal wealth of information, and we have very detailed bullet pointed lists. And so you will find all of those in the episode notes and in the message boards, etc. And what we're going to focus on today is sort of a general idea of these different concepts. So if you are on a treadmill, if you're driving, if you're walking, you don't need to write this stuff down, you'll, you will have access to all of it. Um, and as a quick recap, we've shared with the audience some insights on different types of practice sales with Dr. Lance Rosa, and then with him dived into helping colleagues identify their why for selling. And from there, we began to explore the mental and emotional aspect of selling a practice with Dr. Susan Cohen. And you can find those episodes where you can find the podcast, vinfoundation.org forward slash podcast, but those will also all be in the episode notes. And today we are doing a deep dive into financial and legal aspects of selling a veterinary practice. So Jose, I am sure that 
if there is somebody that's considering selling a practice like Brie, and you can you can tell me, Brie, if you feel this way, but I'm sure one of the main questions is, what sort of documents am I going to need? Like, what sort of financial documents? What kind of legal documents? Like, where? what do I need to do as a practice owner to get myself set up for success to potentially sell? That's the scariest question, right? Um, what What do I need? How do I find it? Where do I find it? What does it mean? Yeah. And, and to, to that point, one one of the the overarching concepts that I that I want buyers and sellers uh, to think about is you're telling a story. You're telling a story about your practice. So from from a document standpoint, we're going to start off that we the, the buyer really wants to know about the real estate, the physical real estate. They're going to want to see the lease. They want to they're going to want to know uh, what is the layout of the practice, generally speaking. Um, the layout itself doesn't necessarily impact the the overall value, but they, what they want to see is is your potential for continued growth. So, how many exam rooms do you have? Uh, do you have parking? Do you not have parking? Ultimately, the buyer is purchasing an asset, and they need to minimize risk. So, on the real estate side, they want to make sure that there's no hidden problems that could prevent them from capitalizing on what they're purchasing. Um, on the financial side, um, the the gold standard is your tax returns. Your tax returns are legal documents. They have the signature. They provide the overview of what this practice is doing financially. Um, and they're also gonna wanna see uh, profit and loss statements. Sometimes they'll request serial profit and loss which means that they want to compare first quarter, let's say of 2021 with first quarter of 2020. Um, and they're going to want year to date um, profit and loss. The profit and loss, a lot of the, the information does flow into a tax return, but there are some things that are on a, on a profit and loss that don't actually show up on a tax return. And it gives them snapshots of periods of time so they can compare periods of time within a year, for example, uh, so I've seen uh, companies want a month-to-month -month profit and loss. Uh, typically, these are very easy to produce from your from your booking um, uh, platforms. But uh, different companies want to see snapshots and compare those snapshots with previous years to see if there's aberrations in the incomes and the revenues, and it permits them to understand how stable the revenues are over time. Um, Moving forward, the the companies are going to want to know who's producing what. So if you have three doctors, are all three doctors roughly producing the same amount of money, uh, sorry, amount of revenue, or is there uh, a weightness uh, that varies where you have one doctor that's producing, let's say, 50, 60, 70 percent of the revenues and some some other doctors are producing less. They're just trying to understand how the practice works because that may influence on what kind of negotiations are gonna happen with each of the professionals that works the practice. Um, now, every practice, they're, once again, they're buying risk. And we understand that veterinary practices are providing a service and you need to have staff. So they're gonna wanna know, are the veterinarians going to continue uh, post-purchase uh, post within the practice? Um, what is the management? Uh, this can be a, a more of a problem with smaller practices where maybe the practice owner has had a dual role. Maybe it's a, it's a 
uh, doctor and spouse where the spouse is, is the manager. Uh, continuity of management will absolutely affect the, the value of the practice because ultimately, if the management continuity is not there, then they're going to have to either put somebody in that role or, the, or assume that responsibility. And then they're going to want to see the payroll. They want to know wh what each employee, um, how they're being paid. Are there, are there any roadblocks? Um, anybody who's tried to buy multiple practices understands that sometimes payroll has um, employees that are not actually working the practice. They can be family members. They can be the children. They can be spouses. So they're going to want to, to look at the payroll and, and make sure that the payroll truly reflects how the practice is operating. Uh, those are the, the four big categories that I would say where the financial documents fall. And most of these are readily obtainable. Most practices will use a, a payroll system, a payroll company, uh, like an, uh, an ADP or a Paychex. And most of these payroll uh, reports can be downloaded you know, very shortly. Um, leases typically are readily available. Uh, the one problem with leases is uh, where the owner of the practice is also the owner of the real estate. And sometimes I've seen practices that actually don't have a lease. Uh, that can be both a benefit or, or a hindrance for a company that is um, considering purchasing a practice. Wow, Jose, that, that's a great rundown. And I really like what you said in the beginning about that you're really telling a story with these documents, right? You're, you're trying to give a potential buyer an overall view of your story as a practice owner. And it's really helpful to hear um, what a company that's purchasing or what a, a individual purchaser um, is looking for when they're inspecting these documents. They're looking for a manager. They're looking for continuity. They're looking for um, the stability and growth factor in the practice. Yeah, they're, they're trying to make an assessment of how risky is this investment and how would that affect what I'm willing to pay for that investment. Exactly. That mm -hmm. Yeah, that's huge. Well, I know one of Bree's favorite financial questions, Bree. I'm going to let you ask it because she, she she's she she just loves asking this one. I just gotta I, I gotta know what the hell is an EBITDA? I mean, where does it come <laughs> from? It seems like it, it seems like a, a a mythical magical creature that can be anything to anyone. Sure. So obviously, <laughs> sure. it's an acronym, uh, and it stands for earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Um, by removing um, those four uh, categories, you're, remo you're removing expenses that are not typically transferable to a buyer. So depreciation and amortization have more to do with how the, how the practice is uh, maneuvering or, or uh, putting expenses in, onto their books to compensate them for buying a practices. Taxes are variable by state, they're variable by, by corporate structure, they're variable by uh, the, the way that the practice was financed, um, interest uh, similarly so. So those four categories do not typically transfer to the new buyer. Therefore, we're, we're removing them and only looking at the earnings. And by looking at the earnings, then you can benchmark 
a company, being a veterinary practice, be it uh, a hair salon, be it a, a donut store, whatever it is, within similar companies within the industry. Got it. Um, back in the day, like when I bought my practice in 2003, um, I just said, can I afford the practice? I really didn't do a lot of deep diving. Um, I just said this practice is barely uh, open. The practitioner that owned it is barely barely present. Um, and I didn't even realize that the sewer would overflow every year. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, uh, I think people are uh, a lot more uh, savvy than I was. Um, how are people uh, de deciding how to buy practices? We always talk about multiples. How do they pick the multiple? Where uh, It seems like multiples for a, a private uh, purchaser are different for, from a uh, consolidator. What does a multiple mean? Help help us understand that weird semi, not really mathy, more also EBITDA magic-y. Yeah. So, so yes, the multiple is kind of this mythical number that is applied onto um, the value of EBITDA. For, so if a practice, uh, for example, has an EBITDA of $200,000, then you're going to apply a multiple because what you're buying is the ability to obtain the continuity of the cash flows. So you're paying money uh, on cash flows of $200,000 in perpetuity or $200,000 that hopefully is going to grow every year into a larger amount. So you have to apply a discount rate. Basically, it's what are what is the value of $200,000 in five years, 10 years, 20 years. And, and that's where the multiple comes from. The bigger question is where did the initial numbers come from? And I've done a deep dive with, with other consultants in the industry to try to determine where did that number come from? And typically what we're finding is that we actually don't know, but somewhere around five times EBITDA which for a lot of practices was roughly, if a practice is 20% uh, profitable, about a year's growth was where the banks started to feel comfortable that the veterinarians were able to afford this practice, we're gonna be able to afford a living, make their payments. Um, the, so, so the traditional numbers come from underwritings in banks and what, what is the way the banks are willing to assess risk as it pertains to an owner. But even then, that number pertains to an owner who followed the traditional model of, I'm going to buy a practice and work the practice myself. Now, right. when different ownership structures arose, uh, for example, um, when I buy a practice, my goal is not to work the practice. I'm willing to work it if I have to, but I don't wanna be an owner operator, uh, or I want my involvement to be a minimal amount of, of, of working in the practice because I want it to be an asset that's producing money for me. When corporations started to come in, they have a very different uh, structure of what their long-term plans are. So they're able to mobilize and reap benefits um, at valuations that are much higher. For example, if a corporation is looking to uh, eventually go public, then they're able to pay 10, 15, 20 times uh, a multiple over EBITDA because ultimately what they end up selling in shares 
may have a multiple that's 50, 60, 70 times dollar for dollar on asset. So if they buy a million dollar assets in shares, they may be selling 50, 60, 70 million dollars worth of shares for that for for what they're buying. So the the way that 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 EBITDA is is calculated truly is based on who the buyer is and what their long-term plans are. So somebody who is looking to work the practice themselves may is looking to be able to pay a loan on a month to month basis is not is is not going to be able to afford paying right. anywhere more than six, seven, maybe eight percent of, of the of the of the yearly earnings of that practice. Because right. and that's the not, dilemma that we have. You can't afford it. Right. That's kind of the dilemma that we have in our industry right now. Um, and we're going to all have to put our heads together about that uh, in the future. Yes. I mean, there, there are solutions uh, to the problem. It's just our industry has been slow in accepting the solutions. Right. So as we're, as we're um, figuring out all those things that um, affect the multiple, is there anything in your mind that uh, a practice owner can do to improve their multiplicity? <laughs> so, you know, so, I'm making up um, words as I go. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. Actually, there, there's, there are a lot of things. Um, there's about 12, upwards of 14, maybe even 15 different factors that evaluate, that, that can change the valuation of a practice. Jordan, um, can, can we list those on our, yep, yep. All this. Yep. All of this will be listed in in the episode notes. Yeah. Absolutely. Give us your yeah. top three. So my top three. Um, I would Just, say num- number of doctors. Okay. Yep. A hundred percent. Okay. Uh, That's a prime mover. Two would be uh, the management. And and How Jordan, so? you mentioned that that uh, I was in the process of buying a practice. But mm-hmm. I'm also in the process of selling a practice. Um, <laughs> You're the perfect so, test case, Jose. Little did we know. <laughs> so one of the things that that uh, I identified um, in the sale of one of the practices and, and getting this practice ready to be sold because it's gonna for me it's a multi-year process is that I needed to change the management and divest myself mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. being the driver of management and empowering my hospital manager to be basically the sole person who has uh, the responsibility of the day-to-day operations of that practice. So management style, number of doctors, and also the last is, is there, is there growth? What are the growth potentials of this practice? And where does this practice sit within its competitive landscape within a geographical area? Right, mm-hmm. which they can't change. You're not gonna be able to change where that house is that you're buying but you can change the way you're um, uh, what, what the way you're optimizing and u- utilizing the house. Yeah, absolutely. And and is there and, and within a geographical area, for example, every practice owner has to decide who is their client. And by that I mean, are you going right. in a niche mm-hmm. practice? Are you going low end? Are you going in the middle? Are you trying to cater for everybody? Where are there opportunities for growth? And sometimes. When, veter- when I talk to veterinarians, there's just a, mis- a, a mismatch between what they're offering and what the competition is for what they're offering within their geography. And that's what's limiting their ability to grow. Right, right. So uh, those are three things that I feel like people can really 
dig deeply into. I really want to take a moment to encourage each of us who are practice owners to take some time, uh, maybe carve out, um, you know, a couple of weeks every year to look into how we're running our practices. We're so busy. We're deep in the trenches and we're so busy, you know, dodging asteroids and uh, kind of growing the strawberries and picking them and doing all the things we're doing every single day. Let's take a time each year and dedicate that to looking at how we're running our practice, who's managing our practice, what's our plan for the future. Even if we just started owning our practice, we want to make sure that we're developing a practice that's going to go on. I, I would agree wholeheartedly. I mean, when, when I look at kind of reading management books and, and business books, one critical habit of successful people is taking time to think, taking time to analyze and, and really prioritizing the fact that if we are the drivers of our companies, we have to put energy into that management and not expect it to just develop on its own. Right. And Jordan, since you're the, the driver of this, uh, this world here, can you please give me a time machine so I can go back <laughs> about 15 years and, and set some practices in place so I have more time to do, uh, to do just one more thing? <laughs> So, yeah, I think setting yourself up for success yeah, is yeah. is challenging. And I like that idea, Jose. It's so easy in our really busy world to just go, 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 go and get so focused on going. And actually, I was just reading, I think I just read yesterday that Bill Gates takes two weeks a year, one week each, where he goes and just reads and thinks and has ideas and um, you know, maybe that for some people is five minutes a day or 10 minutes a day, whatever it is that's tangible and feasible for you. I think that there is a lot of value in creating that sort of white space in your mind to allow, you know, free thoughts to come yeah. and, and, to, and to do the reading and to explore different ideas because it, it's so hard when we're so in it, you know, cause we're so just in the midst of everything. It's so hard in every aspect of our life to get some visibility and to get some perspective on it. And once we do that, I think things become a little bit more manageable. And definitely if you're looking at how you want to take your business to the next level, and from a selling perspective or potentially purchasing, as Jose is doing both, yeah. um, there's there's a lot of value, I would say, in, in doing that. I think that's a really great tip. Yeah. Yeah. And, and kind of not to digress into, you know, because it's an important topic. But um, for me also, and, and I and I tell, you know, other veterinarians is we have a tendency to look inward into our industry mm -hmm. and want to get ideas from other veterinarians. But ultimately, this is not the most business savvy industry out there. So <laughs> when, when I'm looking for ideas, I'm looking outward. I want to see what, what mm -hmm. other industries are doing. And it can be almost anything. It can be the hotel industry. It can be restaurants. It can be service. Uh, there's mm -hmm. a lot of really intelligent people in other industries. And you can pick and choose what works for, for your own practice. And we just have to learn to look realize there's an opportunity and then bring that opportunity into your practice. Jose, clearly you've got the most experience in selling and buying hey, I bought a definitely practice on this once. podcast today. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you say are some of the roadblocks that you find in selling a veterinary practice? So I think that the, I'm going to talk about that from the buyer's perspective. Um, mm -hmm. The 
the, the biggest roadblock is a seller that is not committed. Somebody who hasn't mm. done their due diligence, mm-hmm. they're kind of treading the water. They don't have a solid plan. Uh, and that could be a financial plan. It may be a life plan with their family. Um, they, they don't understand the process. And in doing so, they have an expectation that somebody else is going to do that work for them. Right. And what ends up happening invariably is they start conversations. A lot of money is spent in negotiations with lawyers uh, to find out that what the seller may have wanted was not realistic for their for their economic stability. Or maybe their accountant comes in and puts a roadblock and says, I know that you want to do let's say owner financing, but you can't do that because of X, Y, Z. Or their lawyer says, uh, uh, I know that you initially negotiated for this, but I'm gonna advise that you don't do that because these are the risks to you. So truly, mm-hmm. in order for a, a, uh, a practice uh, to be sold and to minimize the time, uh, the stress, um, and certainly the cost is that the seller has to do due diligence and get things in order. Their house has to be in order. And right. I, I'm going to start off with um, their taxes and, and their tax returns have to reflect the operations of the practice. We need to eliminate all personal expenses. We need to eliminate the car that we're paying, the weekend home, uh, the, the uh Um, family members that are on our, uh, maybe on our insurance, everything that is not a real expense needs to be cleaned up. And that may take over a year. Uh, Mm -hmm. They need to understand and have meetings with their their accountants and their their financial planners to understand the tax implications of a sale. So a lot of people don't understand uh, what capital gains are or what the flow down of the proceeds of a sale or a practice and, and what's going to be due and when is it due? And it could change how a practice owner decides to sell their practice. Right, um, right. And they, they also need to be to have a conversation with their legal team to say, what risk am I willing to accept and what risk am I not willing to accept so that the legal uh, um, team does not put roadblocks that hamper the transition and the progression of a negotiation. And I want to encourage everyone to join us on the message boards to discuss these. I mean, these are the this is the deep dive stuff that um, that we're going to have uh, individuals are going to have specific questions about. Um, when's the time to get evaluation? Uh, what kinds of places should I look for evaluations? What's a reasonable price for evaluation? All those questions. Let's let's uh, let's drive those to the message board so that we can have that there for perpetuity for everyone mm-hmm. next year that comes along with this question. Right. Sure. That's super right. valuable information. Yeah. So what, what, when, when talking about negotiations, um, I always re- revert to uh, the term BATNA. It's an acronym and it stands for the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. And, and it's the realization that we all have things that are of higher priority than others. So if you can identify right. what your top priority items, what things are either a go, no go, what things you're willing mm-hmm. to negotiate, and then you can try to make that assessment to the 
opposite party, right? Uh, uh, the sale of a practice requires a seller and a buyer and find out in, in your best assessment what their top priorities are. Then you can use that knowledge to help you move along the negotiation. But ultimately, it's very interesting to me because I've encountered this on more than one occasion where I start a negotiation to buy a practice and the seller doesn't know what they want. Mm -hmm. And and then they're kind of relying on me to make that decision for them. And it just becomes a drawn out, very um, stressful and, and unfortunately uh, frustrating and expensive yeah. because a lot of these, these back and forth uh, go through lawyers and the lawyers are charging mm -hmm. by the hour. So right. are, are you bumping into people who don't know if they want to work for a couple of years? Are you bumping into people that don't know how much money they want? What kinds of things do people not tend to um, marshal and have organized before they start walking this path? Um, for, for practice owners that also own the real estate, they don't uh, understand right. that these are two separate negotiations and you can right. maximize your future value by prioritizing one versus the other. You can, you can change your tax um, um, liabilities by how you maybe move value between the real estate and the lease and the practice. Uh, they don't, um, oftentimes, uh, I've encountered more than once where the seller initially is considering financing the practice themselves, but then finds out that that's not feasible, feasible. because they're, a uh, financial planner has given them information that they weren't thinking about. Um, right. But more importantly, uh, some of these sellers uh, just don't know the value of the practice and they don't understand what's affecting the value of the practice or why it's being brought down. Right. This is a, the, uh, the real estate thing and the value of the practice thing. Those seem like really um, turning points for folks. I'm hoping that we'll have a dynamic conversation about that on the boards. I think that's something that, um, I don't know my, my uh, real estate, um, but I think that folks do. I understand there's a huge uh, value in, in positioning yourself properly with that. And I think we should chat about that on the boards because that's an important yeah. topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so so for, for some practices, especially here in Northern New Jersey, where small the value of the real estate has outpaced the value right. of these small practices there may be more value in the real estate and how that is negotiated could be a huge windfall for the seller sellers oftentimes look at the value of the real estate as if what's about the comparable value for this property in in my geographical location and what they really need to be looking at is what are the value of the cash flows moving forward because right. The, if it's it, it's all about cash flows, it's and it's stability of cash flows. Uh, I just had one of my practices, one of the buildings appraised, and the simple fact that if I negotiate with the tenant uh, an extension of the lease ahead of time, two years ahead ahead of their auto automatic um, five year term renewal, then I can increase the value of that real estate on the open market by hundreds of thousands of dollars because I'm transferring right, it's guaranteed. continuity of right. cash flows to the buyer. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Whereas Super somebody's important. saying that this, this lease is, has a renewable five-year term in 18 months, they, that's a risk that they have to assume. If I assume the risk for them, then right. I can transfer that in value to, to the buyer. 
Mm-hmm. So, Jose, if there are five things that you would say um, a, a person should really kind of stay on top of and, and get organized before they start uh, irritating you with their practice uh, offer, <laughs> <laughs> offer for sale, um, what are the what are those five things? Can you kind of give us a? a, a oh, so so one is let's, let's start with the lease. Um, do you have a lease? Do you not have a lease? What are the terms of the lease? If 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 the if it's a third party lease, is it transferable? Um, and what what kind of limitations are in that lease for your ability to to sell your business and have somebody else assume that? Um, mm-hmm. You're gonna want once again your financial records. They have to be clean. They just have to be clean. Uh, uh, I cannot tell you the horror stories I've gone through of trying to look through pages of credit card um, monthly uh, bill statements, trying oh, to gosh. determine <laughs> what was a personal expense at Costco versus what right. was actually purchased. And that right. just takes a huge amount of time. So your, yeah. your financial records have to be clean. Um, and you need to make sure that your, that your practice management software is able to print out the financial reports. So uh, there are still a lot of veterinarians out there that are not computerized. It's interesting. Oh, uh, it's a nightmare out. when we get their charts. It's a nightmare out there. <laughs> I know. Um, I hate that. I'm like, don't send it if it's handwritten. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and let's go back. We, we talk about what is what is your exit plan? Are you willing mm-hmm. to work for how many years? Uh, what is it that you want? Are you looking to have uh, a lot of free time so you can travel? Do you want to work in chunks of time, work hard and then play hard? Do you want stability? What is it that you mm-hmm. want is critical because that's going to be part of the negotiation. Do you want to walk away after after the transition or are you willing to stay 18 months, two years, three years? Um, we talked about the practice valuation. Pay to have a professional evaluator tell you what your practice is worth ahead of time. Ideally, I would do it at least two years ahead of time. And then in that same in that same report, they should be able to tell you where the weaknesses are and then you should start to address those weaknesses. Mm-hmm. If you That's address a great idea. Yeah. Then once again, mm-hmm. you can have the practice valued. And yes, you're going to pay four to eight thousand dollars to have the practice valued. But this is oftentimes your biggest asset. What's going to guarantee your retirement? Uh, spend the money, get a professional to do oh. it. Don't try to do it yourself. Oh yeah, um, those are great. Example, those are great. Fi- yeah, those are great five things. Um, I I value when I buy a practice. I do my preliminary evaluations myself. However, now that I'm considering selling a practice in a couple years down the road, I paid a professional mm-hmm. evaluator to give me their perspective. Right. Mm-hmm. I I I I, I want to make sure that my narrow mindedness doesn't reflect <laughs> what right. what is important yeah. to somebody else. So I paid somebody and said, "Give me evaluation of this practice." Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then also, you want to eliminate roadblocks. And roadblocks right. can come in many ways. Uh, it can be a family member. It can be a spouse that says no. It can be a. Uh, um, it can be sickness. It can be employees that are critical employees that are uh, not willing to transition. Um, right. It can be a partner that has a different idea. So it can be zoning. I, I've been approached to buy practices. Um, for sale practices that I would have loved to have purchased, they didn't have the zoning to have a practice in that location. 
There was a handshake agreement between officials and the practice may have been there for 30 years. Right. You don't have the zoning. Mm-hmm. Um, all these, these roadblocks need to be identified and they need to be remedied or be able to find a solution around them so that when you decide that you're going to start paying money for lawyers and accountants, everything goes smoothly. Right. Mm-hmm. Make it easy for somebody to buy your practice. Make, Make it, it easy, easy for them. Exactly. Make it easy. Once a, that story that you're telling should be short and sweet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Here we are. Yeah. We're stable and we look like we're growing. That's correct. Yes. <laughs> Our future so bright. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Way to end with that, Bree. I like it. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Jose, for your time and just all of your information. I think this is going to be extremely helpful for our colleagues. And, you know, we'll say again, check the episode notes. We will have links to the message board discussion as soon as the transcript, et cetera, is done. Um, so thank you both so much. Is there any last last bit of advice or comments that you want to have for our listeners? Uh, yes. Um, I'm a huge proponent of minority partnerships. Uh, don't look or forego uh, the the value of minority partnerships as an mm-hmm. exit strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, for many practices, looking at opportunities to merge the practice uh, into another may be a very good option, especially if it's a practice that doesn't really have a lot of of uh, of profits or if it's below the kind of the target acquisition for corporates, uh, some rural practices may benefit from this also. Um, and, and just don't think that selling uh, has to be the, 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 the typical traditional route. Um, a, making a practice, a small practice, a satellite of a larger group may be a great way to be able to sell a practice that may be very hard to market otherwise. Awesome. That's a great, it's a great piece of advice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That there are multiple, and I think that's kind of touches on what you said earlier, just that there, there are multiple options out there. It doesn't need to be just as we see. And as Mm -hmm. so many, as you were saying, look internally within the veterinary profession, if you look externally at other businesses and, and different professions, you definitely see that they have setups like that, right? So why why couldn't that be an opportunity within veterinary practices? Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the hardest things for me, and, and most of what I do is in partnerships and um, on the VIN platform, I disclose, I'm probably in eight to 10 different partnerships, always as a minority. And there's a tendency to, um, to be very skeptical about minority partnerships. And- mm-hmm. To me, it, it's, it, it adds a lot of value because it, it really reduces my risk. It strengthens um, yeah. the base. I'm not, I'm not yeah. the sole decision maker, but it right. gives me the opportunity of doing other things because I am part of groups of people that are overseeing a practice. So looking at minority partnerships uh, to me and is a great way for a practice owner to transition to a veterinarian and still potentially obtain in the three to five year window, the same type of, of money uh, as if they were selling corporately. They just need somebody that- Looks can like we need another that. episode. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and the last but not least, 
for 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 veterinarians who are really thinking about selling is spend um, three, four, five hours with somebody who can give them counsel and really explain the options so that they get a better a better idea of what is truly possible out there, uh, especially if they find themselves limited in their ability to see an exit strategy that is beneficial uh, and desirable. And what kind of person would um, would we be looking to to give us that counsel? So you, I mean, you're looking for somebody uh, that, that by nature, typically they're consultants. Like and, a practice broker? Uh, the practice broker, I think the, the, my issue with practice brokers is I think that they have the ability to do it, but they, they also have a bias, right? They're right. looking to do your business and they're looking right. to sell it. You're looking for somebody who hopefully doesn't have a bias. They're just telling you, how, how can I structure this? What kind of conversation can I have with my partners? How could, what are, what are possibilities? And, and especially if you're looking to, to transition a, a practice and keep it outside of the corporate aggregator space, then by nature, you're probably not working with, with your traditional broker that you're paying them um, uh, a fee uh, to market your practice. Right. So you're looking primarily at consultants. And, and the question to ask is, how often do you help people structure these deals? That's yeah, great but, advice. I mean, yeah, I get a coach. A conversation. You want to lift more mm -hmm. weight, get a coach. Yes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you both so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I think this will be really helpful to our listeners. Again, we encourage you to ask questions, um, <clears throat> look at the episode notes, engage on the message boards, and let's continue to have this conversation. Let's not, you know, let the discussion end here, but let's continue it. I am sure that everybody has questions and wants to know more. And so we want to hear from you. That's the most important thing because we are here to help. Thank you, Bree. Thank you, Jose. Thank Thanks for having us. Me. Have a good day. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Veterinary Pulse. Please check the episode notes for additional information referenced in the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow, subscribe, and share review. We welcome feedback and hope you will tune in again. You can find out more about the VIN Foundation through our website, vinfoundation.org, and our social media channels. Thank you for being here. Be well.